there, and welcome to Power Play. I'm Vashi Capellos. Tonight, the Prime Minister still can't sell the opposition on his special rapporteur plan. He's delaying. What's to stop it from happening again in the next election if we don't get answers before that election happens? Trudeau faces another day of grilling on elections interference. What will it take to satisfy the opposition, and where is this all going. We'll speak to uh, one Liberal MP and a campaign director coming up. Then changing terror laws to get aid into Afghanistan. It is no exaggeration to say that lives hang in the balance. The government wants to send aid into Taliban-ruled Afghanistan, and they're changing the law to make it happen. Afghanistan, Afghanistan rather, fell to the Taliban a year and a half ago, though. So what took this long? We'll ask International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan in a few moments. Plus, a fond farewell to the House. When it all is said and done, there's much more that unites us than divides us. After 14 years on the Hill, the first Canadian to go to space says goodbye to Parliament Hill. Mark Garneau will be here for a final interview a bit later on our show. But first... Will the Prime Minister commit to returning any money that his party or his leadership campaign or any other branch of the Liberal Party got from the PRC? Yes or no? Foreign interference is not and should never be a partisan issue. What's to stop it from happening again in the next election? When he was in charge of our elections, all he did was make it harder for marginalized Canadians to vote. As you saw there, the opposition continues to press the Prime Minister on alleged elections interference. And today, the House Committee studying allegations of elections interference heard from Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie and Intergovernmental Affairs Minister Dominic LeBlanc. That did prompt some really tense exchanges between those cabinet ministers and opposition MPs. That committee is actually happening again as we speak. They are still talking about this issue today. We're going to show you some of that in a moment. The big question, though, can the Prime Minister get the opposition on board with what he has called a special rapporteur, or do all roads lead to a public inquiry? With me now to discuss that, MP Talib Nur-Mohammed, a Liberal member of the Standing Committee on National Security. Hi, Mr. Nur-Mohammed. Good to have you with us. Thanks for making the time. Thanks. Good to be here, Bashi. Uh, on the question of a public inquiry, uh, I know that you've been on this program. We've talked about it many times. Uh, the government has now appointed a special rapporteur to make that determination, but we don't really have any details about when that might happen or how long a decision on that might take. Is your government prepared to limit the amount of time that special rapporteur has to make a call? Look, I think it's important in these situations, and I'm going to start by saying it's important for Canadians to know that the 2019-2021 elections were free and fair. Nobody disputes that. No opposition parties, no experts. I think it's important to start with that with that framework. Now, with that in mind, what the special rapporteur is going to have the freedom to do is to determine the amount, the scope, and the degree to which they want to dig into whatever it is that they feel is appropriate. They're going to come back with recommendations. And I think it's important, given, this, given the seriousness of this matter and given the importance of ensuring that Canadians can feel confident in the process, that that individual is given the time to do the work that they need to do and to make the recommendations that they need to make. Our government has said unequivocally we're going to accept the recommendations. If that recommendation includes a public inquiry, that's what we're going to do. It's important to give them the time to do that. And the challenge with limiting the time on that bashi is that if they say, look, we need to do more work on this, you, the last thing that you want is for folks to say, look, government curtailed the work that that individual was doing in their independent capacity. 
I, I, I certainly understand that, but I also think that with each passing day, you can hear this get more and more partisan. You can hear the calls for a public inquiry cement more among uh, a unified, really, opposition benches fr from all parties. And if we're looking at another six months for some individual who has yet to be named to decide whether or not an inquiry, a review, whatever the mechanism is, is worth recommending to your government. What happens in the interim? Aren't you still vulnerable to the accusation that you're not doing enough to deal with the problem? Well, I think you just need to look at what has already been done and what is being, doing now, being done now, right? So the last federal election, the last two elections, a protocol was set in place that we've talked about before, where you had senior public servants, nonpartisan public servants, who were there to determine whether or not there was a risk to the outcome of the elections. They determined, in fact, there was no such. There was no such impact on the outcome of the elections. Since then, we've said that ENSICOP, the, the Committee of Parliamentarians, who are cleared at the national security, at the top secret level, to look at materials, they're going to be digging into this and making determinations on their own. You've got NSERA, the National Security Intelligence Review Group, who are going to be looking at this under their mandate. So you've got that process happening. And now you've got the rapporteur. So you've got three different processes that are underway and in place to come up with recommendations and to come back with independent, thoughtful work that we can then look at and make decisions on. That doesn't mean that, that, doesn't mean that things aren't being done in the process. In fact, you've already got work being done, as has been done since 2015, to make sure that there is that level of confidence. And this special rapporteur, right. the objective is as much about ensuring that Canadians feel that sense of confidence as it is about anything else. But that's kind of the point, right? They don't. Despite all the things that you laid out, and I don't want to take away from them, because your government has done stuff to address the issue, including all the things that you said, Canadians still overwhelmingly have questions about the degree to which democracy was threatened in mm -hmm. those elections. And I'm not in any way saying that the outcome was not free or fair. You're right about that. But, for example, there's reporting yesterday from Global News on ENSICOP, which you referred to, that it did review the issue and sent that information to the Prime Minister's office, and he was aware of it. We don't have any confirmation from the Prime Minister because he didn't answer questions about that. On the work done by the panel that you referred to that was evaluated by Morris Rosenberg, I spoke to Mr. Rosenberg just this weekend, and he said that the work that he did to review that panel did not include the latest allegations that surfaced as of three weeks ago from the Globe and Mail and Global News. So it's not a full... He, he actually said, point blank, it's not, it's not the final word on all of this. So, so again, I'm asking you about putting some clear parameters on what this special rapporteur is, who it is, what they do, how fast they do stuff, in order to combat the vulnerability that, that you know, persists at, uh, against your government at this, point, at this point, rather, around these questions. For sure. And look, Canadians are right to be concerned. It means that they care about their democracy. It's right for all of us to be concerned, not just as parliamentarians, but as citizens. And the process, the processes that are in place may not be overnight solutions. And, you know, it's very easy to say we want this to be dealt with in 24, 48, 72 hours. That's not how national security works. That is not how matters of national security are considered. You have to look at the intelligence. You have to look at the evidence. And they're two very different things. You have to weigh out the impact of those decisions. You have to determine what can be revealed publicly and what, be, what must be maintained you know, under secret. And when you talk about the idea of a public inquiry, the irony of a public inquiry when it comes to national security matters is that the very nature of national security materials, classified materials, means you can't put, put that into the public domain. So the question remains, if we don't allow all of this work to take place, what is a public inquiry actually going to solve? The idea of doing all of this work in advance of whatever those recommendations are allows us to ensure that we have, a cl we have clarity of scope, we have a clarity of understanding of what the issues are. And then if there are recommendations that come out of that, we're going to accept whatever those recommendations are. Okay. Okay, Mr. Mohammed, I'll leave it there. Thank you so much.
That's Liberal MP Talib Nur Mohammed. Let's get some more reaction to where things stand now on alleged election interference from Fred Delore. He was the 2021 Conservative National Campaign Manager. He's a managing partner with Delorier Public Affairs. Hi, Mr. Delore. Good to have you back on the program. When we spoke last week, you were also unsure of whether or not a public inquiry was the right route to investigate these allegations. Are you still? Uh, do you still hold that position? I certainly do. Um, what I recommended last week in an op-ed I wrote in the Toronto Star was that uh, the Prime Minister should defer this to ENSICOP. That's a committee, a multi-partisan committee. He took it actually a step further than what I was recommending and has created the special repertoire that will look at this. And it makes sense. Um, a public inquiry and what the opposition is calling for is uh, needs to be given a mandate. It needs to be given certain, uh, uh, very strict guidelines on what it's supposed to follow. And uh, the opposition is, um, I, I feel, feel pulling, pushing and pulling at the same time, demanding it, but at the same time doesn't want the Prime Minister to make the call on what that would look like. So the Prime Minister, by setting this up, will have someone uh, to investigate this, to look into this further and see if there's something here and whether it does need a, a public inquiry or not. I'm not convinced a public inquiry is going to get to anything. I think it's going to be a tremendous waste of time. It's going to be maybe uh, fun TV, fun political theatre, but I don't know what would actually get out of that. Uh, what we need, I think, is strengthen the legislation, as I mentioned last week on this. That's where the, and that's where I think ENSICOP could come in, where they could do a report, find where the holes are in legislation and plug those holes. So, I mean, it's going to be strange to people listening because you manage the Conservatives mm -hmm. uh, in the last election, and they're the ones driving this point, right? They're the yeah. ones saying that it's public inquiry or bust. You're saying they're wrong. Well, look, an opposition party is going to oppose. That's the, the it's right in the title of the of what they're supposed to be doing right now. Uh, I, I'm more concerned about what's going to be happening in future elections, and I think that's something that we need to be looking at by simply uh, demanding a public inquiry. It's easy to do. It's easy to uh, scream that you, you need to do this without any actual uh, parameters on what this should look like. So I think it makes sense. Now, where this comes uh, becomes a big issue is who is the prime minister going to appoint? That is the question. It needs to be someone that is unimpeachable. It needs to be someone, because, you know, we have seen this government make a lot of mistakes in their appointments over the last number of years. They've, they've appointed some questionable people to different roles. This needs to be someone that everyone could have faith in, and that's going to be hard to do. Do you have any concerns about the effectiveness of ENSICOP, or, or perhaps maybe the process through which, if they do have a review, then those recommendations are passed on? What Global's reporting over the past 24 hours is that essentially there was some stuff that came to light. There was a review conducted prior to the allegations that have surfaced over the last uh, three weeks. And, and we just are unclear with, with what came of that. I think this issue has been elevated enough that there's going to be an expectation. I certainly have an expectation of legislative changes coming from this. I need to see, to be satisfied that NCCOP or whatever the process is, to see new legislation come in, a new Elections Act or some sort of uh, changes to other criminal acts or whatever it is, investigative powers. I think Elections Canada needs more teeth to be able to go after uh, anything that they're seeing on this front and to be able to communicate with other agencies. We've, I have a sense that CSIS and Elections Canada and RCMP may not be communicating as, as best as they can be and maybe there's legislative roadblocks in that that need to be removed. Do you have that sense from your work on the 21 campaign? Like, Were, were there communications from the Conservative Party, for example, to, I don't know who, one of those three parties, mm -hmm. and, and do you feel, I guess the sense we've heard so far is that those weren't acted on, right? Well, there's some, there's some instances where in 2021, last year, we brought some issues to the task force that was set up that we saw. Uh, 
that was a year and a half ago, and we're hearing Elections Canada a year and a half later is now looking into it. Mm -hmm. That's a bit concerning. What's, what happened there? Why is it a year and a half? Or maybe they were looking at it and they're just still looking at it. I don't know. Uh, but there needs to be better communication. Before I let you go, I read this week, I think it was Terry Glavin who wrote that uh, there are, are concerns, he wrote, that uh, it wasn't just, you know, people, the, the Chinese communist regime trying to buoy liberal candidates, but there was actually some work done there to make sure Aaron O'Toole didn't remain the leader of the party following the 2021 election. Do you think that's true? I don't know. I don't have enough information on that yet. Uh, that's something that's, um, you know, uh, Mr. O'Toole had a rough go after the, the, the 2021 election. Um, and, you know, the, I don't know. You don't have it. So that's not something you're privy to at this point or an accusation uh, that you're no, familiar with? No. Uh, I shouldn't say I'm not familiar oh, with you it. Are. There's, okay. there's things, there's rumblings, but I don't have anything to, 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 to add to it. Okay. Okay, great. Thanks very much for your time tonight, Mr. Delory. Good to see you again. Uh, I certainly want to show you a little bit of what's going on on that committee that I mentioned. Uh, we're going to play some clips, some of the back and forth between the opposition and those ministers because a member of, one a member of the opposition is being accused of uh, making his line of questioning or directing his line of questioning in a sexist manner. Our, our front bench panel of former premiers is going to talk about that. I think I can show you the committee. It's happening right now. It is still uh, quizzing various uh, witnesses. There's Greg Fergus, a liberal member of the committee. We're going to keep following what happens there. They are looking into those allegations of Chinese interference. But first, I want to turn to the issue of Afghanistan. The federal government is introducing a bill uh, that would change uh, the criminal code, specifically anti-terror laws. The objective there, to, to get Canadian aid to Afghanistan and allow NGOs to operate there. Doing so under the law as it stands is illegal because of a part of the criminal code that outlaws materialists supporting a terrorist entity, in this case, the Taliban. Take a listen to part of today's announcement. Approximately two-thirds of all Afghans will need international assistance just to survive. It is no exaggeration to say that lives hang in the balance. This bill meets the urgency of the moment, creating a streamlined process, giving NGOs like the Canadian Red Cross the flexibility that they need to help those in need in Afghanistan. As you heard there, the need for aid is dire. Since Afghanistan fell to the Taliban back in the summer of 21, 35 million Afghans have been displaced, 80% of whom are women and kids, and 1 million kids are at risk of starving to death. Harjit Sajjan is the Minister of International Development. He's with us now. Hi, Minister. Good to have you with us. Thanks for your patience. I appreciate it. Uh, good to see you. I, I wanted to ask first off, look, uh, we, we spelled out the timeline there. Afghanistan fell back in the summer of 21. Why did it take this long to make these changes? First of all, we need to make sure that we get it right. I mean, this legislation was put into place to making sure that uh, financing does not go to uh, terrorist organizations, and no one predicted that the uh, Taliban, a terrorist organization, would take over the, over the country. Um, what this uh, uh, bill will do is actually create an authorization regime, regimes that will allow more NGOs um, to be able to operate there. So, so with, this, um, uh, with, with these changes, we'll have more flexibility on the support that we can provide. Humanitarian support, we have continued to provide um, over the, the year and a half, approximately $143 million of humanitarian uh, support and about $70 million that went 
went towards health as well. But what this will allow us to do is actually increase our flexibility to work with many organizations. And I do take the point, Minister, that this isn't kind of something you want to do very, you know, with, with the switch of a hand. It's complicated. It involves the criminal code and involves terrorist organizations. Mm -hmm. But I read through all the testimony before the special committee on, on Afghanistan, and there was a lot of it to this effect. In fact, uh, they released a report in June of 2022 advising just this. Your government's response in October 2022 was that it, it agreed it should act immediately. Yet here we are, you know, five months later, nearly six months later, and you're just finally announcing it. So I do have to challenge you with respect. It, it's taken a really long time for your government to make this change. And the thing is, it does seem like, obviously like a long time, but what we're also doing is, and this is not just about Afghanistan, this will now allow us to operate anywhere in the world if a situation ever was to come up. Other nations did have a provision when the previous government put this legislation into place, didn't anticipate a terrorist organization taking over the country that, we're, that we are trying uh, to help. But what we wanted to make sure we get this right, because having a process that does not work for the NGOs that we want to work with is not helpful either. So we wanted to make sure that we, we, got, uh, we got this right. But having said this, uh, humanitarian support did continue. But what this will allow us to do is work with many different NGOs. And I actually want to thank them uh, for this work because their input was very important on how to set this up. You know, though, they felt a lot of frustration, right? Of course, As I was yeah, reading absolutely. through that, Martin Fisher, the head of policy for World Vision Canada, was testifying before the Senate, said, I have yet to encounter a situation where the discrepancy between the rhetoric and the reality is so stark. He felt like your government and, and others who testified like your government uh, conveyed that they were seized with this, but but nothing could materialize. Was there something that impeded it, or, or was it a lack of political will? No, not at all. In fact, actually, all of us were all on the same page. We wanted to make sure that we, we got this right. Uh, in fact, actually, World Vision and many other organizations were at the announcement. Uh, yeah, uh, they're happy now. I'm not but, taking but, away from that. No, but the yeah. thing is, is we do we didn't make when you want legislation we should not take lightly when you take change legislation we, we wanted to make sure that we had the right process because it's uh, having getting it right to making sure that we have the flexibility is important we at the same time we need to make sure that and funding does go to the Taliban so this the the the, the process that we'll put in, in into place allows us uh, to do this but having said this what this allows us to do is now just broaden our, our scope and the work that we can provide and I want to thank all the organizations for their not only their advocacy but also their advice and and their communication back and forth to make sure that we got this right. The reason I asked the question about political will is because the the sort of bigger, the, the, the wider scope of your government's response to Afghanistan has been criticized, right? The the speed at which, and, and, and I'm not trying to pretend there aren't major blockages in the way, right? Major barriers to delivering aid, to bringing uh, refugees over here. But there has been a lot of criticism about the speed at which the bureaucracy that existed, um, the sort of unpreparedness that it almost seemed to take your, your government by surprise. I know the U.S. is not immune from that criticism either. C can you be explicit with Canadians watching and in particular with people from Afghanistan who have either come here or who are still waiting, mm -hmm. who are still waiting for even communication from the IRCC uh, about you know, your government's intention? First of all, um, when our support to the Afghan people has been there from the beginning, and it's not stopped. In fact, actually, when it comes to supporting the Afghans who are, are trying to come out, a lot of work has been done uh, behind the scenes uh, to set up the, the appropriate uh, support. I know that Minister Fraser has been actively uh, involved with this. So uh, what we want to do is making sure that we um, have the tools to, to provide the appropriate support. And I also just want to take this point. We, we also need to send a very strong message to the Taliban regime when it comes to some of the edicts that also have come out. We want to make
make sure that we send a very strong message with our international partners that uh, um, the uh, uh, the uh, the education for girls uh, needs to be un unlimited. So that we will work with our international partners as we provide support uh, to the Afghan uh, people. We'll also be a very strong voice for their advocacy as well. How do you navigate um, the, the sort of complex issue of trying to send that message? And also making sure people who live there are okay, right? It's like mm -hmm. it, it, it's it's helping them, but it almost abates some of the pressure on the Taliban. Yeah, and, it's, and sadly, we do this other other parts of the world as well. I mean, for example, we also provide support uh, for the Syrian people, uh, even though with the Assad regime that, that's there. We also work in Yemen as well. So this we're not new. Uh, this is not new new to us. Um, and I have a lot of faith with not only um, with our, our folks at Global Affairs Canada, and I get to meet them all over the world. I mean, we work with just amazing partners who have a lot of experience. Uh, in this, but in this case here for Afghanistan, because there is a terrorist entity that's actually running the country, we do, did need to make the uh, change the legislation. I want to thank all the, uh, uh, the parties who actually uh, for their advocacy as well, but especially all the NGOs, uh, the Canadian NGOs, have, uh, who have provided that uh, the direct uh, support and guidance. And speaking of them, just before I let you go, Minister, you told the Globe in December you were planning additional aid shipments once this goes through. Mm -hmm. uh, what are they, and when are they headed to Afghanistan? Well, the no, so this will um, so the the support that we have provided so now what will work will work with the different NGOs to look at the type of support so once so you haven't thought about no, already just, what that will we be? have thought about yeah. it. I don't want but I don't want to get get ahead uh, of this we want to make sure that they go through the various process we have obviously when it comes to uh, health we have moved forward on this but we need to now work with the different there's uh, different nuances within um, Afghanistan as well but because in some some areas you can operate some areas you can't some areas uh, of some provinces are actually not following the edict and education is going. So this is where the organizations who have that detailed knowledge on the ground will be very important and now through the authorization regime will actually move forward. How so fast can that happen? I'm just trying to we, from the perspective we, people looking for that aid. In fact, actually we want to move it as quickly as possible. I can't put a timeline on it, but this is something that we work very actively. For example, just in the last about three or four days, um, I spoke to our special envoy on, from, on Afghanistan, how we're coordinating our work with the international partners to not only provide the support, but at the same time coordinate a very strong message to the Taliban regime that uh, uh, banning girls from education uh, is unacceptable and we won't uh, stand for it. Okay, Minister, I'll leave it there. Thank you very Please, much for your time you. today. International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan. We have a lot more co to come tonight on PowerPlay, including the just-released details of U.S. President Biden's visit. The front bench is also here. Former Premiers Kathleen Wynne, Christy Clark, and Daryl Dexter a little later on the program. We're back in just a moment. Welcome back to Power Play. U.S. President Joe Biden is coming to town. Ottawa and Washington are now confirming details of a very long-awaited visit. Canada is traditionally a first foreign visit for American presidents, but the pandemic forced a virtual summit back in 2021. CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier has all the details of the visit for us. Hi, Joyce. What do we need to know? The date, first of all, the dates. The dates on the 23rd, that's a Thursday. So the president will arrive on the 23rd, go back to Washington or wherever his destination may be that day. So it's a one night, which is one night more than Barack Obama when he visited. You remember that was a one-day visit. Yeah. Uh, it was huge, but it was one day. Um, so this is really the first real official visit since that Obama visit. Now, 
Donald Trump did come to Canada, but that was for the G7 in Quebec. But it was he never came to visit, you know, right. the way the American presidents usually do. So very big, long negotiations. You said it, very long, mm -hmm. and you know, pretty much led by the Canadians who wanted to pin down this date. So they're probably pretty happy today. And, and tell us a bit about what will happen when Joe Biden is here. Two things: what, what was conveyed to us today. Um, uh, first of all, and you can tell us more about this, he'll talk to Parliament, just like we saw the, the President exactly, of the European yes. Commission. But also, what are the what is the focus? Like, what are the subjects that are on the table? Well, the okay, so clearly, you know, the focus with the Americans is always trade. Um, and, you know, that word never comes without the second word, which is irritants, right? <laughs> uh, so trade will be one. Hand, yeah. uh, security, for sure, is going to be on the table. Haiti is going to be on the table. Uh, border, NORAD, uh, considering, you know, those flying objects. So we saw in the, in the last uh, few weeks. So those are going to be obviously on the table. Another thing is the infrastructure legislation of Joe Biden, this $1 trillion infrastructure, new infrastructure, uh, the Build Back Better. Um, you know, Canadian companies and the Canadian government would like to know, you know, exactly how they could contribute uh, because there's a lot of money. The Inflation Reduction Act, which is, you know, sort of the push of Biden to go green energy, that's where Canada would like to offer it's, for instance, it's minerals, it's critical minerals, those used for batteries. Now, you, you know, there's going to be negotiations. This is, it's not going to happen when the two men are face to face with their, with their, you know, with their ministers and secretaries. But, you know, clearly that is on the table. Uh, look, I mean, there are tensions between the two, the two countries, uh, the border being just one of the many, trade being another one. And the fact that, you know, the Americans are renewing this push for green to get, to get America to a place where Joe Biden wants. Look, it's a 369 billion dollar uh, project that he has on the table and clearly Canada wants to be a part of that. Yeah, and has to figure out how to counter it from an investment perspective. It's Absolutely. Gonna, yeah, it's going to be interesting. Thanks, yeah. Joyce. CTV's Ottawa Bureau Chief Joyce Napier. Let me turn now to the list, a roundup of what else is happening in politics today. Defense Minister Anita Anand announcing that the feds will accelerate the purchase of weapons to improve Canadian military capabilities in NATO's eastern flank. Canada will fast-track the portable anti-X missile system, an anti-tank guided missile system, the counter-unscrewed uh, aircraft system to provide protection against drones, and the acquisition of soldier-portable short-range air defense weapons. Canada's biggest military deployment is Operation Reassurance in Latvia. Anywhere from 800 to 1,000 CAF members are deployed there. Last, government, last summer, rather, the government said it would upgrade its battle group in Latvia to a brigade-level force. Minister Anand also announced the launch of public consultations to update Canada's defense policy. She says its 2017 defense policy does need updating given the geopolitical landscape has changed since including China's military modernization, increased cyber threats and Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Meanwhile, over in Ukraine, cities across the country are cleaning up and restoring power after an overnight barrage of Russian missile strikes killed at least six people. Ukraine says it intercepted 34 of over 80 missiles launched by Russia. The attacks largely targeted Ukrainian critical infrastructure, prompting the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog to once again up an appeal for a protection zone around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant, which lost power during those strikes. Each time we are rolling a dice. And if we allow this to continue, 
time after time, then one day our luck will run out. I call on everyone in this room today and elsewhere. We must commit to protect the safety and security of the plant. Credit monitoring agency Equifax says Canadian credit card debt soared in the last three months of 2022. The rise comes against the backdrop of rising interest rates and high inflation. In fact, Equifax says younger Canadians are relying on credit because of persistently high inflation. The data from the company shows credit card debt increased by more than 15% over last year, totaling more than $100 billion for the first time. The overall consumer debt total rose 6%, topping more than $2.3 trillion. Non-mortgage debt, it's up 5.4%. But for millennials, that type of debt jumped by 8.4%. Equifax also says credit card payments are slowing down as more consumers carry a balance from one month to the next. However, as the popularity, interest and growth of the women's game have swept the globe, our most painstaking battle has been with our own federation and trying to obtain fair and equitable treatment in the way we are supported and the way we are paid. That was Christine Sinclair, the captain of the Canadian National Women's Soccer Team, who just finished testifying minutes ago before the House Canadian Heritage Committee. She was alongside her teammates there. The players are taking their fight for pay equity to Ottawa. The women are locked in a labour dispute with the sport's national governing body, Soccer Canada. The defending Olympic champions want the same support at this summer's World Cup in Australia as the men's team received in Qatar last year. We have a lot more to come tonight, including one last political hill to die on. Longtime Liberal MP and former astronaut Mark Garneau says goodbye to Parliament and takes a stand for minority language rights in Quebec. His exit interview here on PowerPlay is next. You never lose when you run for office. When it all is said and done, there's much more that unites us than divides us. So my challenge to you is to find your better angels and put away the anger and false indignation. Criticize by all means, but do it with respect and maybe even wit. Make Canadians proud of this house and the people in it. Now it's time for me to go. A former Liberal cabinet minister blasts off from Parliament. Mark Gurneau is bidding the House of Commons farewell. He was first elected as a member of Parliament representing a Quebec riding back in 2008. He would go on to become Transport and Foreign Affairs Minister. Garneau was re-elected in 2021, but shuffled out of cabinet. Before jumping into the political arena, of course, Garneau was the first Canadian to enter outer space. Have a listen to our conversation. Hi, Mr. Garneau. Good to have you here. Good to be with you, Vashi. I guess for probably the last time. I appreciate you making the time. Uh, probably <laughs> the last time. You're right. Uh, you said when you were announcing uh, your retirement that you spoke to your family last fall and mm -hmm. that they basically tried to make the point that they'd like you to retire while you're still healthy. Was the idea of retirement at all or leaving politics met with any reticence on your part? No. In fact, uh, after the 2019 election, uh, when I went back to transport, I said I won't run in in the next election. It was a minority government, didn't expect it to last more than a couple of years. But then the Prime Minister named me to Foreign Affairs in January of 2021, and that was seven months before the election. And then I felt, my goodness, I've only been in the job for seven months. There are a whole bunch of things I'd like to do. 
it wouldn't be right for me to leave now. So uh, my family reluctantly said, okay, you can run in, the, in, in this election. And of course, I didn't go back to foreign affairs. So, but because it had only been a few weeks since I'd been elected, I didn't feel it was right for me to say, okay, I'm, I'm leaving. So I stayed for an extra year and a half. I was given two very good responsibilities for committees, the Indigenous and Northern Affairs Committee and co-president of the Special Committee on Medical Assistance in Dying. And those were very satisfying. And so I said to my family, when I table the report on, on MAID, Medical Assistance in Dying, I promise you I will then send in my resignation. <laughs> so no nerves at the prospect of not being here anymore? You know, I was filled with all sorts of emotions yesterday. Uh, you know, part of me uh, leaving this incredible job, because I really did enjoy it, seven years in opposition, seven years in government, uh, but at the same time, the feeling that, you know, I've, I've had a good career and that I need to spend more time with my family. That was very, very strong. And uh, yesterday was very moving for me because I didn't expect the, the outpouring of, of, of positive things uh, that people said about me. So Why didn't you expect that? Well, you, you know, because we most of the time we don't tell each other uh, great things. Uh, <laughs> we're, we're in a very partisan sort of yeah. place. And, uh, and, uh, and I was very touched. I mean, I knew my relationship with the Liberal Caucus, but I was very moved by some of the things that the opposition said. I have a few questions for you about some of the things you said in, in mm -hmm. that address. But mm -hmm. uh, first, I sort of want to get the politics out of the way, because there's lots of speculation about the quote-unquote real reasons yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. you left. And so I just want to ask you straight on. First of all, you, you did serve as Foreign Affairs Minister. When you came back mm -hmm. from that election, yes. you were no longer a minister. Mm -hmm. uh, is the fact that you were no longer a cabinet minister and the prospect of becoming one didn't look too uh, optimistic part of the reason or the reason that you're no longer in politics? So I would say no. I, I would say that, you know, you deal with the reality that faces you. I was no longer in cabinet. I was disappointed, uh, but that was my reality. And so what was I going to do? Fortunately, um, some very attractive jobs came along for me in committee. And as I said to somebody, I did things in the wrong order. I started in opposition, went to cabinet, and ended up a backbencher. But, you know, <laughs> uh, I had a well-rounded career, and I really enjoyed it. And in the last year and a half, I feel very strongly about reconciliation. So Indigenous and Northern Affairs was a very satisfying thing. And made is critically important to every single citizen. So doing that job for me was something that I was incredibly motivated by. A difficult, a difficult topic, but I, was, I feel that that was a nice way to finish my career. The other subject that has come up of late is specific to the province you, or the, the, the mm -hmm. constituency that you represent, mm -hmm. and, and that is around Anglophone rights mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Quebec, and in particular the new, the, the federal law rather, that, that is being examined right now, and some amendments proposed by the opposition that have the possibility of being accepted by the government you were a part of until mm -hmm. a day ago. Mm -hmm. Are you worried about Anglophone rights right now? Yes, I am. Um, you know, when I made the decision, and, and my family and I made the decision that I was going to leave now, it didn't mean that I wasn't going to do the rest of my job. And as it so happens, the bill that you're talking about, the federal bill on official languages, uh, was going into committee to be looked at to finalize it. And I felt out of principle I had to speak up, even though I did not agree with the some of the things that were in the, in there or the amendments that were being proposed. So that's one of those moments in your political life, and I've been at it for 14 years, where you have to say, is this a hill to die on? Is this something you feel so strongly about because you don't 
you don't subscribe to it, that you have to speak up. And yes, that's the way I felt about it. And uh, and I'm I'm glad to say that uh, that uh, I I argued it and and felt that I was doing the right thing. Do you think um, that the federal government, that again you were a part of until a day ago, is doing enough to protect minority Anglophone rights in Quebec? Are you worried that 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 they aren't? I think that. The, the only issue that I had a problem with and which, which I stated was that the Quebec Charter of the French Language, which is Bill 96, was basically put into, uh, in, in, it's referred to in two places, in an official federal bill on official languages. And I think that's unacceptable. And that's, that was my point. One is a federal bill, one is a provincial bill. They each have slightly different purposes. Am I committed to protecting French? You bet. I'm a Quebecer and I'm a very proud Quebecer and I recognize that French is the official language of Quebec and I've always been a proud Quebecer. But in Quebec, the Anglophone minority, because it's about one million out of eight million, they also have rights and it's the rights of the Anglophone minority that were of concern to me in the same way as I want to protect the minority French communities in the rest of the country. And just really quickly, I guess my, my question is, the fact that, that that Bill 96 might go ahead and be a part of this federal bill, mm. does that make you doubt the veracity with which the federal government is willing to protect Anglophone rights in Quebec? I think that, you know, everybody has the right intentions, but my concern is that if there is any um, uh, contestation uh, of the federal bill and its interpretation by having bill 96 the quebec bill in it it may lead to very difficult constitutional decisions and i don't think that is the right way that things should go and also the fact that bill 96 invoked the notwithstanding clause got it okay uh, the the stuff that you said in your farewell speech one thing in particular stood out to me and that is around uh, the fact that you lost before you won. And you said that uh, you never lose when you run for office. I think that given the 24-hour news cycle I'm a part of, uh, the way question period sounds, social media right now, uh, there might be a lot of people who are hesitant to enter into the political sphere. And I'm wondering, as you leave it, what your advice is to somebody who thinks about it, maybe wants to, but is scared off right now. Yeah, and, and that was the reason, I, uh, partly why I said it, because I think that it's important to encourage people who want to step forward and go into public life uh, as, uh, as members of parliaments, to encourage them and to tell them, you know, don't be afraid of going in because you think you might lose. Uh, anything that you do uh, in trying to become uh, a member of parliament, I think, is a noble undertaking, and I think it takes courage but we need people like you. And so I was trying to send that message to people who might be sitting on the fence. Do you think the nobility is lost a little bit now? Is that why you felt like you had to use that word when you spoke about it? I think we all start off altruistically and sometimes we lose our way temporarily, hopefully, along the way. And, uh, and there is a certain cynicism with respect to being a politician. And I'm trying to tell people that no, don't let that uh, influence you. Well, that's the perfect point to end things. Thanks very much, Mr. Garneau, and best of luck in your retirement. Thank you, Vashi.
That's Mark Garneau. Uh, coming up, we'll take a quick break, but we'll turn back to our top story, allegations of Chinese interference in the government's announcement, foreign elections interference, I should say, and the government's announcement they'll appoint a special rapporteur. Is it enough to quell the political blowback? Our front bench panel of former premiers is next. Stay right there. Will the Prime Minister commit to returning any money that his party or his leadership campaign or any other branch of the Liberal Party got from the PRC? Yes or no? Foreign interference is not and should never be a partisan issue. What's to stop it from happening again in the next election? When he was in charge of our elections, all he did was make it harder for marginalized Canadians to vote. The government, as you heard there, continues to face a barrage of opposition pressure on alleged foreign elections interference. So far, it seems the Prime Minister's plan to calm concerns isn't exactly working. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau wants a yet-to-be-named special rapporteur to determine if Canada needs an elections inquiry. The opposition, though, is not picking up what he's putting down. They, too, though, are under fire for their criticism of the Prime Minister and whether it's going too far. Let's bring in our front bench panel of former premiers to weigh in, a former premier of Ontario, Kathleen, Kathleen Wynne is here. Former Nova Scotia Premier Daryl Dexter is as well. And former Premier of BC Christy Clark is having some audio issues, so we're just working on them, and, and hopefully she'll be with us in moments. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Daryl. Great to see I, you both. I, and I, here, I hope I, you both no. hear me okay. Uh, we, were, we were convening last week and, and talking about this very issue, and, and this was prior to the announcement from the Prime Minister about the creation of the Special Rapporteur. Um, and both, all three of you had really agreed that there was something, you know, there was more of a response required. Kathleen, I'll start with you. Your, your assessment of the response that, that did come, this creation of the Special Rapporteur. Well, Vashi, as I said last week, I wish it had come earlier. So I'm concerned about that, and I think that's part of the reason that um, it's not being received in the way that it might have had it been earlier. But um, I think it's going to depend on who the person is. Um, the Prime Minister has committed to consulting with the, um, with the opposition parties and looking for names from wherever they might come. Um, I think there's agreement that the person needs to be impeccable in terms of his or her credentials. And so uh, there are, you know, there are good people who could do this. And he is also committed to a public inquiry if that's the recommendation of the rapporteur. So I think it's a good response. I just think it's late. And so I hope that this person gets appointed quickly. Daryl, how difficult do you think it's going to be to find this, uh, to use the Prime Minister's word, I think, uh, unimpeachable uh, individual to, to occupy that position of the special rapporteur, given how far we are into this controversy? Well, I mean, I think there are lots of eminent people, eminent Canadians who could do, uh, who could do this job. And, and I have to say, I, I would go even further with um, some of what uh, Kathleen said. I think it depends on, of course, who that person is, what they, what they bring. Uh, but I, I, I'm assuming that there will be some kind of uh, terms of reference that they will work under. Um, he's also, uh, the Prime Minister has also said there would be an oversight agency involved, that there would be a committee of parliamentarians involved. It, it, you know, it, um, you know, all of those things taken together um, could do the job, uh, but uh, it will depend, uh, as Kathleen said, on, uh, you know, ex ex what kind of resources are allocated to it, uh, what kind of access they're given uh, to briefings. There's, 
there's a lot we don't know about uh, you know how this process will unfold and uh, so I think the answer uh, to the initial question you put uh, really is it depends it depends a lot on what unfolds uh, in the uh, in the coming days as we see who uh, ultimately is appointed and uh, and what kind of resources they have um, uh, what kind of terms of reference they have I think we have successfully connected with uh, Christy. Hi, Christy. We, we, I know we had some audio issues. My apologies. I, I was just act, asking your uh, your co-panelists there what their assessment of uh, the Prime Minister's announcement of a special rapporteur, kind of the moves he made after our last conversation in which all three of you were calling for something extra to address the issue. Well, I don't know if they could have made a bigger mess of this issue than they have because they started out saying, oh, it's not a problem, it's not really a problem, maybe there's some racism inherent in this discussion, and maybe we shouldn't be talking about it. And then it turned out there was briefings of the Prime Minister, if you go back to 2019 annual report from the Parliamentary Committee on National Security, they warned this government, it was chaired by uh, David McGuinty, that there was a high likelihood of foreign interference in Canadian elections. And so it just kind of, and sort of being the prime minister, watching him be dragged to doing something has really made him look, I think, like he's trying to hide something. I don't know. It's been a little painful to watch. I don't, I, you know, I think at this point they have to do something better than a special rapporteur because really, if you don't, if you don't have uh, a committee of parliament looking into it, after all the time it's taken for him to get here, kicking and screaming, I think it really doesn't help him look like he's trying to be transparent and nonpartisan about it. It needs to be transparent, absolutely. There is nothing more important than protecting our democracy. And I think for the prime minister kind of to rescue a little bit of um, <coughs> dignity in this thing, I don't think he can appear to be appointing someone who will be ultimately interpreted um, as as close to the government or owing the government something. And I don't think the result will be something Canadians feel like they can have confidence in. But yeah, it's, that's it's so interesting because... Is, oh, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, that's okay. Well, I was just going to say, my understanding is, as Daryl said, there are committees of parliament that are going to be looking into this as well. Two committees, I think. So um, so it's, it's a combination yeah. of, um, of <laughs> investigations that's going to happen. And if there is... You know, if there is a um, uh, an inquiry recommended, the prime minister has said publicly that uh, that he will do that. So I think that's some protection, Christy, for um, you know the uh, the the integrity of the process. I think the latter the, is the certainly kind of, true if you have yeah, to do a public inquiry. But a parliamentary committee will be a liberal-dominated committee or a liberal NDP-dominated committee. So I'm not sure that you know it doesn't. It's not the the level of, I think, accountability um, that is required here. And Kathleen, I think you're right. You know, he could he could appoint a special um, or a, a, an independent inquiry at some point. I don't know why he wouldn't do it just now and, you know, make it apparent to Canadians that he is trying to do the right thing here, finally. Well, let, let me just interject and bring Daryl in for a second, because uh, I was going to say that it, it's interesting that 
I mean, the, the merits of the actual mechanism three weeks ago, I think, would have been a, a substantive and, and real discussion. I had Fred mm -hmm. Delorion, the manager of the 2021 campaign, of course, at the heart of all of this for the Conservatives. And he's like, I don't, I, he thinks public, the public inquiry will be a, a lot of theater. He said NSACOP, that's the National Security uh, Committee, does have the tools. But he also acknowledged, like, the story has run away, right? Like, it, it has its own legs now. Uh, Daryl, and, and beyond, uh, you know, it, it may not be the perfect policy solution to conduct an inquiry, but there is sort of like a narrative that's emerged that both the NDP and the Conservatives are calling out, the, the Liberals saying they, it looks like you have something to hide, even though we don't know that for a fact, but it's just like the appearance of it all may necessitate something different than even as Kathleen pointed out, what they announced maybe could have worked better three weeks ago or two weeks ago. Yeah, no, I agree with that. This was a this was a story that certainly had legs, and it and it moved substantially over the last uh, uh, few weeks. Uh, and I think there are actually two issues of trust here. One is uh, you know the ultimate uh, issue of trust in in the fairness of uh, elections in the in the country. But the other one, and I think the one that's more damaging, is the whole question of trust in the government itself and whether or not people will trust. Um, uh, any process that they don't see as being open and transparent. And that's the one that uh, can really damage the, uh, the credibility of the government. I also wanted to get uh, everyone's take. We just have a few minutes left, but Christy, uh, the opposition today, there, were, there was an exchange between Michael Cooper in committee and Melanie Jolie. My, Mr. Co I think we have it. I'll play it for you really quickly. You've talked tough with your... Uh, Beijing counterpart, so you say uh, you even stared into his eyes. I'm sure he was very intimidated. I want comments on your question, and particularly the beginning. It's absolutely devastating that that sort of frame of reference would be used in this way. They're called microaggressions, but they don't feel very micro. That was completely unacceptable unacceptable behavior for every woman that has ever taken her place in this house. And I demand an apology. There's a lot of things around this place that make me puke in my mouth often. I don't even know what to say about the last comment. Uh, Mr. Cooper did say today just recently that his comments had nothing to do with the minister's gender and everything to do with the lack of action by her and her government to hold the regime in Beijing accountable. Uh, your quick thoughts on that and sort of the, the cr criticism at times that Mr. Polyev is, you know, in you know essentially um, accusing Mr. Uh, Trudeau of being, uh, you know, treasonous or, or m more in favor of foreign interests. Do you think that runs the risk of going too far? Um, well, 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 if we're talking about uh, Mr. Cooper's comments, I would say yes. I mean, this is what's, this is how sexism cloaks itself in public discourse all the time, is just, well, you know, I would have said the same thing to a guy. Well, you didn't. And obviously those words and the way that he used them, the way that he framed it up was intentional to try and diminish uh, Minister Jolie as a woman, no matter, regardless of what you think of her and the way she's done her job, that is totally inappropriate. <laughs> way to question a minister of the crown. I just, I saw that, I heard it, and I thought, I, oh, you know, it, it still hasn't gotten better. Okay, I got to leave it there. I'm sorry, we're out of time. We'll pick this discussion up next week. Christy Clark, Kathleen Wynne, and Daryl Dexter, thanks so much to all three of you. And just a quick takeaway, I mentioned Fred Delory, the 2021 Conservative campaign manager. Here's what he said about the possibility of an inquiry. 
I'm not convinced the public inquiry is going to get to anything. I think it's going to be a tremendous waste of time. It's going to be maybe uh, fun TV, fun political theater, but I don't know what would actually get out of that. Uh, what we need, I think, is strength in the legislation, as I mentioned last week on this. That's where the, and that's where I think NSACOP could come in, where they could do a report, find where the holes are in legislation and plug those holes. That's the manager of the 2021 Conservative campaign, of course, at the heart of allegations uh, of Chinese interference in that federal election. He says, as you heard there, uh, he continues to say, even in spite of the back and forth on Parliament Hill, that the public inquiry, the concept of a public inquiry, is probably not the right mechanism to investigate those allegations. That the NSACOP committee, that's that one made up of parliamentarians sworn to secrecy, that's probably the right venue. We still have no confirmation of exactly the nature of a review there, but we'll stay on top of it and bring you any details if we get them right now. I'll hand things over to my colleague, Morella Fernandez. Have a great night.